Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida, a wild animal version of Welcome to Florida. We've got <laughs> iguanas coming up, an iguana invasion, but we start with a, a beloved animal that is supposed to be here, but was nearly driven to extinction. Now on the comeback, I love these stories of uh, populations of species on the brink being saved. Craig, tell us uh, about your latest article in the Florida Phoenix, floridaphoenix.com. Well, I'm, I'm eager to get to the subject of iguanas and people's toilets. But yes, this is, <laughs> I got to write a rare good news story uh-huh. from the environment uh-huh. for, uh, for the Phoenix this week. My column was about the uh, Shouse swallowtail butterfly, which uh, at one point, uh, researchers found only four of them left uh, and, th- and three of them were male, one, one female, which is, that's not, that's not a good prospect for the no. future, but uh, through captive breeding and through planting new habitat for them out in the keys, which where they live, uh, they have brought them back and, and volunteers who go out uh, elderly retirees in mesh suits. If you can mm-hmm. picture that going out, counting these things, looking for them, find, you know, seeing where they can find them actually found about 1700 uh this this past summer which is just astounding because it's you know it, it wasn't but like t- 2012 when they just found four so uh they've made a remarkable comeback and we'll be having uh the uh the gentleman the scientist who was at the forefront of that Jared Daniels will be a guest on a future episode of uh, Welcome to Florida. Now, and, and you came across the story by visiting the the butterfly. What what is the butterfly enclosure? They have the a butterfly rain. They have a butterfly okay. rainforest okay. there in Gainesville at the Florida Museum of Natural History, which I highly recommend going to. It's incredible, unbelievable. Really I was just there, Craig, and I didn't tour the butterfly rainforest because I was I was short on time. But their collection is 9 million specimens. I mean, they've got 9 million butterflies. Most of them are, you know, taxidermy, but you can, you can see butterfly literally from all over the world from Florida. Uh, You can Mm -hmm. go into the, it's a stunning resource and they've got the, the, scientists working right there on site. You And and it's free to visit. So yeah, the, the Florida, well, well, the museum's free. Right. The, yes. the butterfly rainforest, you have to pay a little bit. The butterfly but rainforest is an upcharge, but it, 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 it's worth it's it. So worth how it. did you how did you come across all this uh, in Gainesville? Oh, well, I'm, I knew about the I knew about the problems of the shell swallowtail because okay. I've written about it. I wrote about it back when the the when they only found four. I wrote about it saying, you know, is this curtains for them? Mm-hmm. So after my visit, I got a press release from the Florida Museum of Natural History with the news about how they'd found all these new ones. And I thought this is outstanding so i I have to write about it because you know so many times the environmental stories we write particularly in florida are really dire and really downbeat and so it was good to to tell a different story but then that led me to to start thinking about how much we taxpayers spend on trying to fix these ecosystems by bringing back species that are necessary i mean you know butterflies are pollinators Mm -hmm. you don't have a butterfly Mm -hmm. your plants are going to die out yeah, and we need yeah. the plants, if only just because they make oxygen for us. Sure. So so I started thinking, well, who broke the ecosystem? Hmm. Well, let's see. It's a loss of habitat in just about every case where you've got an endangered species. And what 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 do we lose the habitat to? Oh, development. So maybe maybe the developers ought to be paying the cost to fix these things that they broke instead of us yeah. taxpayers yeah. shouldering the entire burden. Well, and you went through this, obviously, in Cattail with the Florida panther, and it, the right. panther is obviously a much larger animal than a, a butterfly. But you, when you talk about captive breeding, you're talking about a team of scientists 
who mm-hmm. are all PhDs, who are all getting paid, who all have to live somewhere, who all have to go out in the field. I mean, this when you are down to the absolute last resort, and that's what captive yeah. breeding is, we're going to round up every individual we can find in the wild. It's what they did with the California condor. Uh, and again, Craig details this in, in, in Cattail. Then you've got to house them. You've got to feed them. It is incredibly expensive. Now, it's worthwhile. I'm, that's not my point yeah. here is to say, nah, you know, a couple hundred thousand or a million dollars, just let them die. But yeah, the you and I <laughs> like on airplane. That. They you bought know. their tickets. I say <laughs> let them crash. <laughs> yeah, you, you got the reference. Very nice airplane. But um, that ends up being put on the backs of the taxpayers, not the guy who built the 7-Eleven and, and the Walmart right. and the uh, Dell Homes. And the subdivision. And, right, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, you can read all about that, uh, floridaphoenix.com. And, and I, I'm already looking forward to that episode with what are the guys who study but lipidologists or something? Lipidopterist. Like? Lipidopterist. So well, this guy is, is uh, Jared Daniels. He's the curator. He's the curator for butterflies and moths at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Great. He's been he's been working on the shell swallowtail off and on since 1993. So this is the Amazing. subject he knows pretty yeah. well. And again, if you can get to Gainesville and visit the the Florida Museum of Natural History, it is absolutely, absolutely worth, worth your stop. time. Yeah. Without further ado, iguanas, toilets. Undo iguanas in the toilets. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, Tom Portuolo <laughs> is our guest. He is the founder and CEO of Iguana Control, iguanacontrol.com. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, first, tell us a little bit about how you got into this this unusual profession that, that you're in. Yeah, somewhat unique. Um, <laughs> I had a previous firm that I had sold, and I was in Key West. Uh, at a friend's home and and sitting on the pool area there were about four iguanas and i remember they were quite large and they were <laughs> defecating by the edge of the pool a very common complaint lovely oh lovely so i asked him yeah dave dave why don't you do something about the iguanas here and he had said oh no one does anything about them which i was surprised because to me i thought it was a, a health risk i thought perhaps it's not a major problem and it was something that maybe just local to his pool and they were just nearby so um, in traveling around Key West uh, during that week, I found out they were quite prevalent. They were all over and different people were complaining about different you know, uh, uh, events that they would cause. So that began the, the journey. You know, uh, I realized there was no real company uh, um, that was tackling the problem. There may have been at the time one or two single operator, you know, trapper who traps you know, uh, uh, raccoons and possums and, and yeah. they may also do iguana. Mm-hmm. So uh it began the, the learning curve. You know, uh, I spoke to uh, a gentleman up in Chicago who was a herpetologist, uh, uh, Miami Zoo, the same department, the reptile department there, a lot of research online to slowly acquire the knowledge of how iguanas move about, what their habits are, etc. And then I developed a line of products initially. So all together, it took probably a good two years almost, you know, 18 to 24 months uh, in putting together this concept. Uh, it's grown in complexity and depth since then, but that I would say would be the beginning, just realizing that there wasn't a need, uh, there wasn't an address to the need that was there, you know, the iguana and what they were doing the property. Wow. What was your first experience in trying to catch one? All right. So then we used to think that perhaps we can use other deterrents like uh, uh, um, scent sprays, Mm-hmm. You know, what have you. Uh, yeah. I used to create these sprays, used to make these bars, and they, they all seem to have the same typical ingredients. Uh, some may have capsaicin, which is a heat element, and pepper and so on. 
some form of garlic, neem oil, uh, uh, vitamin C, and, and so on. So about seven elements. Mm -hmm. and, and, and everyone changes the quantity of each element so they can call it proprietary. Uh, but nonetheless, still basically the same, the same item. And, and found that it wasn't effective. That was my first approach. Perhaps we can just use ways that you know, mm -hmm. can just keep them off the property with sprays and so on. Yeah, and uh, I think garlic only that. works for vampires. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. but it'll, it'll attract Italians. Um, <laughs> so, uh, we started that way first. Then the next level was, you know, I would I would actually just pass out flyers, and as people would answer to my call, you know, I always knew that you could remove them the very aggressive way through the use. Back then, it was a pellet rifle, mm -hmm. you know, a single shot pellet rifle. So that was always my backup. So I would go to someone's home and do performer service, of course. But I was trying these other methods. So then barriers came into play where I experimented with different types of barriers and evolved to the barriers that we have today, which we've patented. So that was the initial walk, going to someone's home who said yes to a flyer, um, you know, having the backup of the pellet rifle that I could use, but trying out these different experiments. I would, I would sell the pellet rifle, but as I was servicing the property, I would try these other concepts to see if they, you know, what was the efficacy of, of sprays, of barriers, and so on. Mm -hmm. Those are the initial steps. People might get a little bit of a jolt when they hear pellet rifle. Obviously, that is a lethal solution, but it's important to remember that just like pythons, uh, these are uh, a non-native species that do more than just, uh, they're more than a nuisance. They, they wreak havoc on the ecology of Florida. So these things aren't supposed to be here. Where'd they come from? So that, that is true. So there's two points that you make. The first point I'll address is uh, the aggressive method. So you have to understand that different animals have different propensities to be trapped. You know, iguanas and, and snakes and possums. and okay. The iguana is known to be a very difficult animal to trap. Imagine that's why FWC says you can take a pellet rifle go to your backyard and shoot these damn things. I mean, that, that's, that's how difficult it is to, mm -hmm. to try to cull this population, to minimize the population. So that's one extreme people have to remember. Uh, uh, second of all is that they do present a very severe health risk. They defecate in and around pools, for example, you know, the, the most severe impact besides property damage. And they grow in fantastic numbers. They have predators in the wild, gators and, and fox, coyotes and snakes and on and on birds of prey but in domesticated areas they have none and they just multiply mm -hmm. so that's one thing to consider uh, um we've developed systems and tools in that aggressive line of it we, we've moved away from the high power pellet rifle to another device that's very effective so so that's that's a, a part of it that listeners have to understand it's it's a necessary evil yeah, yeah. well and I, i'm the so, biggest animal lover you're ever going to find and it doesn't you know when it comes to invasive species you have to do what is necessary. Yeah. And, you as long know, we as it's humane, that's the main thing. Right. Yeah. We can't herd them all up and put them in a zoo. You know, I mean, you're dealing mm -hmm. with an explosive population. Like you said, most of them are in, I don't know, most, I don't know it that well, but in a residential area, there are not alligators and foxes to keep this alien species at bay. They really do well habitating around people. So we'll get back to the other part of my question now. And where did they come from? Where did this, how did, how did we, how did we get here? So no one knows exactly when, but somewhere in the 70s, it was a fad. You know, uh, snakes were a fad back then. Reptiles were a fad. 
and people were buying them by the thousands. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Pet ownership, yes, yes. People were buying them by the thousands, and they were keeping them. They were giving them as gifts. From time <laughs> to time, I still get a call from someone who says, "Can I get a baby iguana? Because I want to give it to my friend as a gift." And of course, I turn them down. I refuse them. First of all, I do it just out of the, the position of the company, how we are, and trying to control. The second of all, it's against the law now. The signed yeah, in, yeah. FWC banned it. Yeah, bill into law. Yeah, yeah. So that well, more importantly than FWC. DeSantis signed a law, signed a bill into mm-hmm. law that you can no longer trade, barter, sell, maintain iguanas in any fashion on a commercial level. So, so, but they came from Central America. They were shipped here. We bought them as, as you know, pet owners. But what happened is Junior from that cute little iguana, the size that could fit in your palm of your hand, just kept growing yeah. and growing and growing. Now, iguanas are difficult to train, much like it's difficult to train a bird where to defecate. It's difficult to train the guana where to defecate. So now Junior is four feet long running around the house doing his <sighs> thing. So it kind of made sense. Let's put Junior outside because they're like cats. They're territorial, so they stay around. So now you can really? see Junior in your back tree. He stays there, and you put your little grapes or, or mango, whatever you want to feed him, and you still have Junior. The problem is that you know Junior met Sally next door, and then that's it. <laughs> and, yeah. and here we go. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the birth of it, as yeah. far as uh, having the yeah. And of course, the the South Florida climate is perfect for them, and there's oh, yeah. all sorts of food sources. I am at the extreme north end of Florida, Amelia Island. We don't get them up here, so my next question would be: How far north in Florida is the the general one invasion? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that that front has moved. Yeah. It's, it's nudging further north as the winters are more calm. So now we've been doing this about 13 years. So 13, 15 years ago, the border was West Palm Beach County. Uh, you really didn't get many north of West Palm itself, mm-hmm. typically. Not many. Uh, now, with the warmer winters we have, we, we, they get as far as north of Jensen Beach. You know, so they are edging north wow. more and more. Now, yeah. that's the green iguana. The genre green, green iguana is much like humans. We come in different shapes, sizes, and colors. The green iguana, same thing. Uh, there's a Mexican spiny tail iguana, uh, um, for example. These other genres are able to, to a better degree than green iguana can, not terribly much, but some t- somewhat moder- moderate their body temperature. Not, not very much, but to some degree. That allows them to withstand this cooler climate. So the green iguana cannot do that. So that, that, that species limits how far north it can go. Mm-hmm. These other subspecies that have that ability, it's a minor ability, maybe 10 degrees or so, as far as the body temperature goes, are, are, are edging further north. It's like an evolutionary thing, mm-hmm. basically. We have to address this in a very serious way. What I do uh, on the aggressive side, I, I think iguanas are fascinating creatures. I really do. And having one or two around, beautiful. Having 10 or 12 becomes a problem, like, like any animal. Yeah. yeah. What's been your experience with the Mexican spiny tails? I asked because I saw a story last week uh, from Hollywood about a woman who found a Mexican spiny tailed iguana in her toilet. And of course, the first reaction everybody always has is, let me flush it back down. And of course, that never works. Uh, no, but no. The, the trapper she called said, oh, I get 10 calls a month about and they're all Mexican spiny tails and they're all from Hollywood which I thought was rather remarkable. What's been your experience with that particular subspecies? I would probably 
tend to agree with that statement. You know, if he's seen about 10 calls, eight to 10, you know, would sound about right. It's probably what he's seen. Um, the, the area the logistic of, of Hollywood sounds right as well. Perhaps that's where many were purchased and, 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 and bought back then. Maybe it became a little fad in that little area. But usually, you know, down around 95, the Hollywood area, along Sterling, what have you, uh, um, that seems to be a pocket of the Mexican spiny tail. The concern is that the green iguana can be five, sometimes six feet long, but it's still an herbivore. By nature, it's designed to run. Yeah. From time to time, you hear about it biting someone, but you'll learn that that person was feeding the iguana grapes, mm -hmm. and the animal doesn't know where the grape ends and the finger starts, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. Or the, iguana, <laughs> or the iguana whipped the dog, you know, a little dog, and the little dog caught the iguana into a corner, and it's defending itself. The mm -hmm. green iguana does not attack. Now, Throughout this conversation, when I speak about habits and, and, and what they do, characteristics, it's a bell-shaped curve I'm talking about. So there's a top 2% that we throw away and a bottom 2% we throw away. Most humans fall between 5 and 6 feet. Some are 7 feet and some are 4 feet, but most of us fall in that middle ground. So that's what I speak about. Someone could respond and say, oh, no, I had an iguana chase me down the street. Well, that is extremely, extremely rare. So the Mexican spiny tail, though, is different. Uh, it tends to eat a little more protein in, in a form of maybe eggs and insects and small lizards. And it does stand its ground to some degree. You can try to shoot away. It may turn and hiss at you. Still less common of an offensive attack, more defensive, but it is known to be more aggressive than the yeah. green iguana. Well, and they've got those the spines, right, which are what they can use in an attack, right? Yes, yes. The, the green iguana gets larger, and those spines are like needles. You can literally run your finger and they feel like little needles. So, yes, they can whack, you know, uh, wow. swipe an animal like that. Say, same as the uh, uh, Mexican spiny tail. Same thing. It'll swipe his tail to, as a defense mechanism. Right. Wow. They got claws, too. I, I, I used to work with a woman who she would come to work and she'd have claw marks in her arms. And I'd say, what, what happened to your arm? And she'd say, oh, that's my baby. My baby clawed me, meaning her, you know, oh, three foot okay. iguana that she had at home. Well, it's like um, if, you, if you own cats. Right. Once in a while, mm -hmm. someone will have these little scratch marks on their arms because a cat may do that. Uh, I compare it this way. Um, if you held a raccoon in your arms and it wanted to get away, it's a wild raccoon. Its claws will rip your flesh. Oh, yeah. The green iguana, not as much. It'll scratch you. It looks ominous. Nature's gift to it is that ominous look like it's going to attack you, rip your arm off and so on. So, on. Mm -hmm. But again, it's an herbivore. So it's not designed in many aspects. First of all, by nature, by spirit, it wants to run. It doesn't attack. Uh, it's bite when it bites down, you know, the pounds per square inch is nowhere near something like a, like a carnivore that with its teeth will actually maybe gnaw off a, a joint or a finger, let's say, for example, um, even its claws, it, it, they, they look ominous, but the most they do, they'll scratch you. They're, they're, they're designed to, to, to grapple up a tree, let's say, but there's not a lot behind the claws as far as power to really do any damage. How often do you get calls like this? Like this one was a woman who found one on her toilet at 5 a.m. How often do you get calls about iguanas turning up in toilets in South Florida? I, I would concur with the, the gentleman you mentioned earlier, probably somewhere around eight to 10 a week. I mean, a month, you get a call where someone will say, it's in my toilet. How do I get it out? Um, the real solution wow. there would be just um, mm -hmm. our, our water system is, 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 has a very basic uh, 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 um, characteristic to it, gravity. 
So you put a straw in a cup of water and you, you cover the top of the straw and raise it out. The water stays in there because of that suction, that, 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 that cavity you create on top of it. Release your finger and the water drops. So we have to have that concept in all homes so the water drops. That's why you have the vents on top of homes. But if you put a, a, a meshing, a wire meshing over that vent, it's around, it's like a straw. It's a round vent most that you'll see on top of a home sticking out. Put a mesh over that and you solve that problem of iguanas coming down into the pipe to come into your bathroom. Okay, so they don't come up through the sewer, they come down through the roof. Yeah, it's not as common coming through the sewer, sewer not as common. Well, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about thought about that before. You you talked about how you have new disposal techniques now. Pellet gun goes away. How do you get rid of them now? Instead of the uh, large pellet rifle, because of the uh, atmosphere, the environment today, with concerns about you know uh, gun control and what have you, mm. um, we we purchase uh, from the market a, a pellet pistol that we have modified. Um, we have a relationship with a custom shop that actually builds air, air pistols, air rifles. Yeah. And, and wow. we change, we change this, it, it, you know, the, the chambers and the valves are to PCPs, these pellet pistols as an engine is to a car. So we modify that. We, we, we change the tolerances on, on these different, uh, 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 parts of these uh, the items. And, and then we call them bright orange and what have you, so that, uh, we have a more effective tool. Uh, and they're not single shot. So it helps us you know, come to a property and be much more effective. You also mentioned uh, a barrier that you use to, you know, to prevent them from getting onto properties that, that, that you have, have developed. What, tell us about that. It's difficult, of course, in words hmm. to draw a picture, but the, the website iguanacontrol.com will show samples of the products. One is the fence barrier. We use the fence barrier for most prominently along pool fences. In Florida, if you have a pool, you have to surround it with a fence, some kind of enclosure, of course. Most commonly, it's, a, it's one of these metal, you know, the, 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 the squared off metal fence that you see mm -hmm. running around. They're either white or they're charcoal or black colored. So our fence barrier attaches to that fence. It's two layers. One layer is a, a wire meshing of kind. Uh, and then second is a plastic strip that goes across the top. That plastic strip prevents them from going over. So the mesh stops them from coming through the fence, either a chain link fence or the pole fence, as I mentioned. Of course, they're going to attempt to climb over. Then our strip stops them from going over the fence. That's the barrier that we use that's 100% effective on keeping them out of the pool areas and so on. Yeah, uh, we have a seawall barrier. We have tree wraps. Tree wraps are more commonly known. The, the cousin to the tree wrap would be the squirrel wrap that you see up in the northeast, that mm -hmm. aluminum thing that goes yeah. around the tree and stops. Okay. Same, same kind of concept, but uh, these, these are different colored plastics that we use to help blend in a little better with the environment. Fascinating. Now, now, I just found out this morning that you guys also do something with the iguana once you've once oh. you've killed it. Tell tell me about that. Recently, uh, we filmed an episode for Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. <laughs> his interest, his spark, was the fact that he had his crew, one of the production managers, somehow found us, drilled down to us, and they were enlightened by the concept of iguana chum. So, fish chum comes from these vessels, the size of almost a football field, floating yeah. out there and throwing out nets as literally as long as a mile. And they catch all kinds of fish. Of course, they get the, the, the target fish, whether it's mark, a mackerel or tuna, what have you. But they catch tons of, I, I call junk fish, fish you can't eat, don't want to eat, and so on. Mm -hmm. So they go into I a catch. separate holding tank. Yeah. They, they go back to facility, and they make fish chum. 
No other reason, but it's a simple, free commodity. No one's given a, a, a fish a list to say, which one do you prefer to eat? So that, that, that's what started that fish chum concept. So what I've done now is we are of a volume, of a size of iguana pounds, you know, that we put down. Yeah. Now that can support a warehouse, trucking, employees. We take the iguana now um, uh, after it's used nice, and we create iguana chum. Same concept, protein mixed up. We, we uh, may use some oils to enhance it, uh, which is known within the fishing industry. And then we just freeze it into the same size box. They have these seven pound uh, or kind of like a rectangular boxes that they sold into. Uh, we, we do the five gallon containers and so on so that uh, they're sold frozen. And uh, we're, we are kicking that project off. This is September, probably October by the time we're wow. done. Yeah, if you're talking about a, a commercial level of uh, iguana you're capturing and uh, trucks and warehouses, this is uh, your your operation is obviously more than a couple of guys in vans. I mean, how how big is iguana control and, and how many individuals are you capturing each week or month? So currently there are 20 of us in, in the field doing that. Um, soon to grow to be 22. Um, each year we tack on, tack on, tack mm-hmm. on. So uh, that allows us to be of, of a good size. I, I will say that in a given month, we do tons. Uh, wow. um, so that allows us to, to, to create this venue, to, to create yeah. the solution, if you will, mm-hmm. so that we, instead of, instead of wasting a resource, now we can do something yeah. more productive. With- and a, a four or five pound or four or five foot iguana is, 50, 60 pounds? Uh, five foot iguana may be something like 30 pounds or so. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, that 50 pound iguana is that seven and a half foot man. Okay. Okay. He, he's out there, but, you know, just try to find him. Right. Can, um, yeah. Can the skin be used for anything like handbags or shoes? Or is there any uh, use of, of iguana skin as a, a reptile, like snakes or, you know, alligator or anything like that? The day that we cut the ribbon on iguana chum, that starts the clock on my next 18-month project. We already have the name Iguana Leather reserved as a corporation within the huh. state of Florida. Um, I've had that name reserved now for a year because I've had the concept for a while. Um, I've begun with the time that I have, I'm still focusing on Chum, to see how you can, you can create that, that process. The tannery industry has drastically been reduced in our, our society, in our, sure. in our country, because the process... Is, is extremely caustic. The chemicals that it, it, it puts out and, and how you have to get the chemicals. Yeah. It, yeah, it is. It is. So, so there are some other countries that do tannery on a large industrial level. So we're reaching out to some of those, you know, Thailand's one country, for example. We, we have done some initial probing to see what would be the process with these factories to ship the skin out. Uh, there's a way you have to you keep it uh, preserved to ship it out to them and then create. We'll decide whether or not we want to be in charge of the full cycle, meaning create the leather, have it produce a product, a boot or a wallet, and then sell that as well, or just supply the skin and you know, we'll, we'll, the hide. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But but that's our 18 uh, month project. Once we cut the ribbon on the guana chum, yes. Huh. Wow! wow. And I can see I can see a big market for boots. I can really. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful animal. I mean, yeah. it, it, yeah. it's a, a nuisance. It doesn't belong here. It destroys property. It it you know tears up the ecology. But none of that is not to say it isn't a magnificent animal. And that's the shame of it, you know, because you know, and I here in in you know Amelia Island we get the um, Cuban tree frog, 
gorgeous frog, but it doesn't belong here. It eats the native frogs. And oh, every couple of weeks I find one and have to capture it and euthanize it. And you stick it in the freezer and you put the ambisol on its back and that, that kind of and it breaks my heart to have to kill this animal, but it doesn't belong here and it will devastate the population of native animals. And, you know, the iguana is the same thing. It, it didn't sign up to be in Hollywood, Florida. I'm sure it'd rather be in Costa Rica or anywhere else. But uh, there it is. And and for the protection of our native species, it's got to go like the python. Let me let me kind of change course a little bit. You're talking about making iguana chum, but some people cook them. Have have you tried any recipes? Have you eaten any any iguana? All right. So the the, the idea of eating, we eat everything on the face of the planet. Everything mm-hmm. from insects. To, to birds, to you name it. But the concept of consuming an iguana caught in domesticated areas, I'm not talking the wild, out in the Everglades, yeah. is a very scary concept. I, I, I have our position posted on the website. It's something like this. So a man throws his line out into the river, catches some fish, walks down to a local restaurant and says, look, these are fresh, I just caught them. Now, in and of itself, that's you know quite innocent. But mm-hmm. what if that man's fishing on the west side of Manhattan in the Hudson River, right down from some chemical plant. So taking animals out from the wild and selling them within our food chain requires the government to get involved. They want to know, okay, where did it come from? How was it fed? For this very reason I explained. People who say, trappers who say, oh, I give them to my local restaurateur, a friend of mine. I, I don't know how real that is, of course, because there are many licenses that are in jeopardy here now when, in mm-hmm. doing that. So you must find somehow FDA to get in there. They must somehow approve the methods and so forth. Our position is no, we we, we will not uh, sell in any way or give iguanas to anyone with the idea of consumption, human consumption of the iguana for that for that risk. What people do here in South Florida, some become very frustrated with with iguanas. Think about if you have 10 iguanas in your backyard, they're three to four feet long. They're defecating in your pool. They're up on your roof, in your at whatever it may be. Yeah, they're digging in the yard. Yeah. So they're taking rat poison and put Mm. into bananas and toss it in the back. They think they're, they're really responsible. They, well, I collect it at the end of the day. I don't want the raccoons to get it. And it sounds like they're responsible. But rat poison was made for a mammal, not a reptile. So it may eventually end the life of that iguana. But it's a slow, a long, slow process until that occurs. That's the reality of it. it besides it being against the law, it's not intended for the purpose of that, that chemical. So people are doing that. It's a small percentage, a small chance that that may occur where now a human being will consume that contaminated meat. But it's there. So we stay away from, from that, uh, uh, that, that industry altogether. Yeah. There's no way you really can stand behind the quality of, of that you know, meat that's butchered in any way, having caught it in the domesticated river or back of someone's yeah. home. Especially yeah. since we, today we, we spray everything as well. Everything's sprayed. You know, our bushes are sprayed with chemicals to make yeah. sure we keep the insects out. You know, and, so on. and guess what iguanas eat? I mean, that's, that's the yeah. herbivores. So for yeah. many reasons, we advocate against the human consumption of iguanas that are caught domesticated uh, in that's domesticated a, That's fascinating because that never occurred to me. I, there was a trapper uh, over on the other coast who actually wrote a cookbook called Save Florida, Eat an Iguana. So sure. he was actually, he was not just encouraging people to eat them, he was giving them recipes for it. So, but that's, uh, that's an interesting viewpoint. I hadn't thought about the, you know, where it came There's from. There's nothing wrong with that. Eat. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Here's a cookbook on how to kill iguana or how to eat iguana. Perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. But be careful where you get the iguana from. That, that's our point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Is there any accurate estimate of how many iguana there are 
out in the wild in neighborhoods uh, around South Florida that, that don't belong there? Absolutely not. I mean, yeah. F- FWC can can announce some number that they may ballpark it at, but no one really knows how many iguana are, are out there. No one really knows how many python snakes out in the Everglades. It's, it's what the scientists call a swag. A scientific wild ass guess. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, now for folks, uh, where are you based out of, Tom? Where is uh, Iguana Control based out of? We have two offices. One's in Fleming Street, on Fleming Street in Key West. The other is in Pompano Beach on Dixie Highway. Um, uh, those are the two main locations that we operate out of. Although everyone in each of the counties will function from where they are, we have like some satellite offices, if you will. But those are two main branches where we keep warehouses. And I'll put information for how to contact you and iguanacontrol.com in the show notes. But what is the the standard advice for someone who, who, you know, you're not able to service them? You've got an iguana in your yard. Who do you call? What do you do? To begin with, everyone hears it already. The idea is is you you can't do anything about uh, the the, the large 30-year-old mango tree in your backyard. Um, and, and if your house has bougainvillea already planted around it and you have hundreds of bushes, it's hard to do anything about that. But on the other side of that coin, if you don't have these items, don't plant them. You know, uh, mango trees, bougainvillea, hibiscus, these are plants and trees that we love down here and it's a great climate for them. But all you're doing is ringing a dinner bell. Uh, there are plants you can put out there. There are trees that you can put out there that don't attract the iguana mm-hmm. to your property. That, that's what's one item. That's, that's more preventive maintenance uh, way of it. Um, it. Also, any gardens that you may uh, plant out. A lot of people are interested in putting gardens. And there are ways you can protect your know, home style way of protecting your gardens as well. Through a, any kind of meshing you could buy at Home Depot to, to in, enclose it, if you will. Yeah. A, a common sense there, really. Um, in the home, you know, definitely, again, one-on-one home ownership. You, you look around your home for any kind of holes that allow access to the attic. Most common are the soffits. Those are this rectangular-shaped screens that allow mm-hmm. the attic to breathe, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they either will rot away or a tree or a bush may kind of push its way through it as it grows up under the easement. So uh, repairing those, for example. It's the one-on-one in home ownership to, to try to make sure that they uh, um, minimize the impact of the iguana as much as possible. And, so and of course, if you if put, a mesh, put a mesh over the, over the, uh, the vent on the roof for your yeah. toilet. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And exactly, if, if exactly. you do have one, then it's fish and wildlife or animal control, or what do you do at that point? Call If you have one, don't do anything. <laughs> don't do anything with one. Even two, welcome to South Florida. Yeah, one or two iguana. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Come across okay. the backyard two or three times a week. Really, you know, it's not worth the effort on, and on, any, on anyone's behalf. The only, you know, line in the sand, I will say, is that if the iguana is defecating in your pool, if it does it once a month, Again, welcome to South Park. But if you have an ongoing issue, you have two or three iguanas, you have defecate around the pool on a regular basis, then you need to do something. And there, I would say, you, know, you want to contact a, a licensed, experienced trapper. That's my recommendation. Go, go online and you can find them. You can check sure. their background through sunbiz.org to see uh, um, any history and what have you. Wonderful. Good advice. Tom Portuolo, the founder and CEO of Iguana Control. Iguanacontrol.com has been our guest. This has been a a very enlightening conversation. I I learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and continued success with the business uh, beyond chum and into leather and wherever else it may take you. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 
I have to tell you my first iguana experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was covering this community called Boca Grande over on the Gulf Coast. Yeah. It's near uh, near Sarasota, Venice area. And I heard that they had a problem with iguanas. And I thought, well, that's weird. And this was like late 80s, mid to late 80s. Okay. So I called somebody I knew over there, a real estate agent. I said, is this true? Oh, yeah, come on out. I'll show you. So I went out and we're driving along the street, the main dragon, Boca Grande, and this four foot lizard that looked like a little Godzilla ran across the road in front of yeah. us on its hind legs. Oh, wow. <laughs> I said, holy cow, what was that? And she said, that's an iguana. That's what we're talking about. A lot of the houses out there were stilt houses. Mm-hmm. And so they were getting up into the insulation. Okay. They're getting up okay. into the insulation in, in these houses and chewing away at night and keeping people awake <laughs> while they're chewing yeah. the insulation. And so they actually voted to tax themselves to hire a trapper. So as far as I know, Boca Grande is the only city that has a has an iguana tax. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we we've done episodes on pythons, and I'm I'm sure we'll do future episodes on other invasive species. But with the with the climate in Florida, it is so hospitable to not only the the wonderful animals that belong here, like alligators and all our native snakes and everything else, but animals that don't belong here. And, and sure. iguana is is on that list. Before we wrap up today's show, I wanted to give people an opportunity to do something what I think is is great for Florida. We've talked mm-hmm. previously about the Oklawaha River, about the Rodman Reservoir, about the Kirkpatrick Dam, uh, about the Cross Florida Barge Canal. All of this uh, comes together with a movement called Free the Oklawaha, which is a 50 years long effort to take out the Kilpatrick Dam and allow the Oklawaha River to flow free again. The St. John's River Water Management District has just opened up a month-long commentary window where residents of Florida are able to voice their opinions about whether the dam should be uh, restored, renovated, or removed and allow the Oklawaha to, to flow freely again. In the show notes, I'm going to put a link to the Free the Oklawaha action page so that uh, you can register your comment to remove the Kirkpatrick Dam, let the Oklawaha River run free. And as it so happens, Craig, next week's episode is going to yes. uh, focus a great deal about this broader subject here. Yeah, we have a, we have a guest coming on who has a very personal interest in the subject. Jenny Carr, her uh, grandmother, Marjorie Harris Carr, stopped the building of the Cross Florida Barge Canal. So mm-hmm. it should be a good it should be a good conversation before. Her efforts could be realized. However, this uh, Kirkpatrick Dam was built. The Rodman right. Reservoir flooded, you know, 15,000 acres of, of Florida forest. So uh, either Google free the Oklawaha. Uh, you can go to my Twitter at Chad Scott, two D's and Chad, two T's and Scott. I've put the link there or just go down to the show notes. Uh, the free the Oklawaha people have put this great resource together where they send you the link of where to comment. They give you all the statements that you should comment on. It'll take you three minutes. And I'm telling you, it is the best thing you can do for Florida today, Craig. And if you ask me, this is the biggest available conservation win on the table, freeing the Oklahoma. And again, it's something we'll we'll talk more about in next week's yeah. episode. It's I mean, this is a it's a long-running problem. I mean, this dates back to when Lawton Charles was governor. He tried to remove the dam. Couldn't do it. Jeb Bush tried. He couldn't do it. I mean, it's just been over and over and over again. We'll see if it happens this time. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>